You're listening to Change the World, the podcast for Jewish nonprofit leaders. I'm your host, Sivya Kohn. Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining me today. I am here with Daniel Solganik. He is the Director of Behavioral Health Services at NALA Cleveland. Thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. So let's jump right in. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and your background? Specifically, I'm always curious here how people got into the world of nonprofits. Absolutely. Um, so after college, I moved to the Cleveland area and I knew I wanted to do something in mental health. I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do or where I wanted to go. And I had a personal connection with someone who was friendly with the um, the CEO of a local nonprofit. And I got a job working in their residential treatment facility, working with teenagers who, for a variety of reasons, weren't able to continue living in the community for mental health or behavioral issues. And I worked there for a very long time and learned a lot. And then I ended up going to graduate school. And then postgraduate school, I got a job working at another nonprofit where I was a school-based therapist. And then I went from there to a yet another um, nonprofit community mental health center, and I became a supervisor of a team of therapists. And during this time, I also did some private practice work. And then I was um, blessed with the opportunity of working at NALA and being part of a organization that was giving back to the Jewish community. And so all of that kind of took place over the course of 18 years. So that's a very short version, but that's that was how I got into the nonprofit world and what led me to where I am now. Got it. So just a little bit of introduction of how we came to be speaking. So I was introduced to Devin Gross, who is the director of operations at NALA, correct? Yes. And um, we've been in touch back and forth. And then I happened to notice his comment on a post on LinkedIn, there's been a lot of conversation there specifically about the cost of mental health and what we can do about it. And a lot of talk about raising money to pay for people to have, um, you know, access to mental health resources, which can be very expensive and most people know. And like David, yeah, absolutely. So David um, wrote a really, really interesting comment about Nala's approach that I found so fascinating. That's how I reached out to him. And that's how this conversation came to be. So can you tell firsthand, like, what what is that unique approach? Okay, so first you have to kind of like undo the wheels of time a little bit. And originally, Nala's mission, as I understand it, because it's before I was here, was a couple of very, very influential and um, willing to put their money where their mouth is kind of people in the community said, we at least need an asset in the community who will research therapists in the community and around the community and essentially just give give some level of... Um, oversight to who's an appropriate fit because one of the many struggles when you're seeking a therapist is you you know you you just go online or you call your insurance and they send you a a list of 400 therapists you call the one that starts with the letter a because it's the top and you go see them for six weeks and never really went anywhere then you go to the next one and the next one and then you've seen six or seven therapists and none of them were the right fit so we needed some kind of shotgun to play that role and that's how it all started and then a few years after that, there was a, there was an initiative to do exactly what you just described, which was to raise money from the community to help offset some of the cost of mental health services for to families. And one of the struggles with that was who decides who's worthy of that assistance? What is the level of impairment and clinical issue that is justifying someone else paying for it? Is everyone entitled to it? Because you want to talk about cost, it can add up very, very quickly. 
So um, in response to that, a few years after that, there was a lot more calls coming into NALA, a lot of people asking for more recommendations and referrals. And there was enough calls that were saying things like, we want to see a therapist in a from setting who is from, or at least has a deep understanding of the from community and also takes our insurance. So Rabbi Hellman, who started this organization with the help of the board, um, called me and offered me the opportunity to take over the role of the referrals and also to build up our internal um, practice. So at the time there was no practice and I got us credentialed as a, what is called a medical group, but it's really just what a private practice is. And then that grew. And then so that we could take on more roles and more staff and do more services, I got us credentialed as a community mental health center with the help of one of my colleagues, um, Mandy Greenberg. And that took about a year and a half. And now we have, I think, 15 or 16 therapists who are providing therapy and case management, family therapy, working with adults, kids, teens. And the uniqueness of our approach is like this. How do we keep high-quality therapists and also um, make sure that we're not taking away from their opportunity to grow their own financial security? Because a lot of people, what happens is you get a job in the mental health field, you work there for a few years, you get some credentials, you get some skills, and then you start practicing. You charge $200 a session or $250 a session, and it caters to... 15% of the community. And then the other 85% like, well, what do they do? They can't afford it. So our run idea is, oh, let's just raise money. And the other idea is what we're doing, which is you have people who have a different job or they have other means of having Parnassa or they are quasi-retired and they just want to give back to the community. And we take them on part-time. When most of our clinicians, I think, are seeing between eight and 12 clients and most full-time therapists have like 30 clients. So... Like we're one person who works at a school. We have another person who works for a like at home, like um, medical group that does social work also. So a lot of our people have these other roles and now on the side, they, they see clients here and we lean on our fundraising and our grants to be able to give them the highest possible percentage of their billing that we could possibly justify so that a, they're getting what they're worth, and also it motivates them to continue being willing to take Medicaid, which is our mission. I mean, we run the stats, and something like 80, 85% of the people that call on Medicaid and voice a need to use their Medicaid for financial reasons. And um, in the two and a half years I've been doing this, I've taken something like 3,000 calls. So we have a, a pretty large sample size of the type of community we're getting to, and it's, it's significant that this need exists. So where, what was the moment or who really first said, hey, instead of fundraising to pay private therapists for therapy, let's just hire the therapist and provide that service internally? Um, Such a good question. I think that this may have started just before me where a couple of from people from the community who were going to graduate school needed an internship and wanted to do an internship to cater to the community. So Rabbi Hellman, in his great wisdom, um, just hired on a supervisor to supervise them so they could do an internship and give back to the community, give some counseling, get some experience. And that, that I believe is how it started. And it went really well. And then we got a larger space. And when 
it really like took on that model was probably when I was like, well, there's a couple of therapists that have called me saying, hey, I recently retired or hey, I had this other job, but I want to help the community and I want to start seeing clients, but I don't want to take on the the stress and the pressures of owning my own private practice. Do you have any ideas? And I was like, well, why don't you just see clients here? And then kind of, it, it, it kind of grew organically, but um, it started with me and two other therapists and one intern. And it grew to us having, like I said, 15. Last year we had five interns. So it really grew a lot in a pretty short period of time. Actually, it went from like a couple of therapists to 15 and five interns in under three years. So, yeah. And that's all funded through Medicaid and private donations? So the funding, I, I try to stay in my lane, but the funding is interesting. So my understanding is that there is a very, very generous people in the community who give very generously to a number of organizations, including to us. And I, I don't know what, to what extent, and I don't know who. And we also build Medicaid and a couple of other private insurances for our services. And we also have a couple of grants. And there's like the Adams Board, the Alcohol and Drug Addiction Mental Health Services Board of Ohio. And they have a specific faith-based initiative where faith-based nonprofits can be entitled to some grants. And there's some other grants that we get, but most of our um, finances come from the clinical billing that we do and private donations that we receive. At least that's Got my it. Got it. So I do have a lot of other questions, but I just want to stop to go back to the like what's striking me about this approach. There's a famous quote, and I hope I'm using it correctly, but I think it's like along the idea of when you have only a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And I think yeah. that in the nonprofit space, you know, everything has been a nail for many, many years. And the idea to stop and say, wait a second, maybe there's another solution to this problem that not only is smarter, but maybe even more effective in the long run, maybe even more powerful. Um, I think that is something to really take note of. So yeah. this was really, well, I might have heard about that. Is it being done in other places as far as you know? What we're doing? Yeah. Oh, not no, not that I've heard of. And not only that, I've gotten calls from Boca and Hollywood, Florida and Arizona and California and Chicago and Detroit. I'll be like, hey, can you figure out a way to do this there? And I'm like, well, one of the unique things about what we do is that we have such a deep connection and understanding of our community that we're able to get the buy-in of the rabbis and the teachers and the principals. And we have ongoing relationships with essentially all of the leadership members of our community. And creating that from outside is very difficult. I mean, hypothetically, a community could do that and we could give a lot of guidance in that. But one of the unique things about our approach is that like it's being created from within the community based on the needs of the community in response to the calls that we get from the community versus, I mean, uh, the average private practice is more like, hey, I'm a decent mental health professional. I want to make more money. So I'm just going to start a private practice and hopefully clients come. It's not that some guy is a good therapist or some woman and gets so many calls that he decides to open a private practice that, you know what I mean? Like we are, we are responding to requests as opposed to having an initiative and then hoping our, our initiatives succeeds. Um, but it, it is an interesting thing because one of the struggles with nonprofits, especially in the mental health world is, um, is like this many nonprofits that I've worked for and they do good work. They have grown so big and they have such a large infrastructure that they have to 
pay the clinicians at the bottom very little to justify the the infrastructure up at the top and it lends itself to people finishing grad school at 22 coming to work there for two or three years while they get a lot of experience and become independently licensed and then they immediately leave the second they can because they'll quadruple their income and we are trying to fight against that by keeping high quality clinicians which is why we have kind of our approach which is get a job somewhere else do something really meaningful that that gives you the kind of progress that you're looking for and then come see clients here on the side take on eight or ten clients and most people can see two clients four days a week and give back to the community and do meaningful work and hopefully make the money that justifies their time but also not to the sacrifice of some other area of their life yeah that makes a lot a lot of sense i'm curious you mentioned before about getting the buy-in of the community the rabbis the schools was that challenging like how did that go um that's a great question um well the initiative of that started before i was here and rabbi hellman one of the reasons why he was uniquely fit to start this organization is that he was a essentially a universally like respected and, and kind of like universally flexible kind of rabbinic person where no matter what walk of life or what school your kids happen to go to like, you know, like Rabbi Hellman is, is great. And I, and I trust his judgment. And then based on his reputation, he was able to reach out to the rabbis of different shuls or the principals of different schools and say like, Hey, I'm trying to help out the community. Let, let me help you. And as we were able to prove that we were an asset to the school or the shul or to the individuals that we were catering to, it lend itself to people saying like, Oh, we'll just call them. And I think one of the fascinating things that we did was historically when people are struggling in their life, the first person they go to is whoever their spiritual leader is. They call their rabbi. But I mean this with all due respect to a spiritual leader. They're not a mental health professional. And if you went to them for medical guidance, they might consult with you about what you're going through and then say like, go see your doctor. And a lot of times what rabbi's really hard position was is that they knew that the relationship between a therapist and a client is pretty intimate and you have a lot of influence over people's personal life decisions. And how do we convince people to go to a therapist and trust the therapist and know that the therapist's guidance is going to be within the value system of our religion? So some rabbis didn't in a very strategic way. Some rabbis just didn't recommend it at all. Some rabbis did their own research, which was very time consuming. And then once they knew that we built up these relationships with therapists and we're doing these kind of warm handoffs while, while doing what I like to call, um, you know, cultural competency consultations and talking to non-firm therapists and explaining about our culture, people became more and more and more comfortable with it. So, I mean, we've talked a lot about our internal practice. So we're catering to something like 150 clients per week in therapy within our office, but for every person getting therapy here, I'm probably doing two or three referrals to non-from clinicians, other places, because there are good clinicians who aren't from that, because of what we're doing, really do understand some of the subtle nuances of our community and are willing to give counseling within the parameters of what our clientele would, would appreciate. So do most or do a significant portion of your referrals come from the rabbis of the community at this point? Um... So I almost always ask people to call, who told you to call? How'd you know about us? And a couple of years ago, it was more profound where people were saying, oh, I called my rabbi or my 
my child's teacher spoke to the principal and the principal told them to have me call you. And that was a very common experience. And now when I ask, it's very common that like, oh, everyone knows Nala. And like, I, I don't know, it's, we're a very large community for a very small community. So word travels very quickly. And I guess the reputation has kind of spoke for itself. So a lot of people do just call us, um, but some people don't feel comfortable calling. So it's not uncommon. It's still to this day, I'll get a call from a rabbi or a principal or a teacher or whoever, cousin, aunt, uncle, neighbor. And they'll say like, hey, look, this person's struggling. They don't want to call, but I trust you and they trust me. So can you give me some guidance on how to handle the situation and I'll relay the information. And I'll find doing that too. It's like, it's all, it can be anonymous. It can, everything's confidential. Everything's completely HIPAA compliant. Nobody has access to our calls other than us. And um, I think because people have grown to trust us, people call on them, their, themselves. And we do get a lot of the, my rabbi told me to call, but that's happening less because the community is more informed about what we're doing than before. Yeah, I mean, this is an across-the-board challenge for most, many nonprofits, which is that a lot of them deal with such sensitive topics, infertility, poverty, like nobody's like posting on their neighborhood chat, like where do I go for this? So the idea of like being that household name, like that that's the dream in a sense of how do you well, well, and by the way, this is not a perfect science because, let me put it this way, for every single person who says, I really want to see someone who's from, I really want to see someone who understands the community, They'll also say, but I can't risk running into my neighbor. I don't want to see anyone that I know. I don't want to run into my therapist at shul. And it's like, yeah. So like, no matter which way we go, there's a good chance that there's going to be some kind of compromise. But one thing is for sure, no one, not maybe not no one, but the majority of people, especially people who have complicated or intimate struggles, they're not chatting on their local WhatsApp group about whatever it is. And up until now, people just kind of pushed it down or they spoke to their rabbi or they did the courageous thing, which is seeking out their own therapist. But like I said before, sometimes that trial and error, trial and error, trial and error of going to multiple therapists over the course of um, a long period of time, especially if you're privately paying and taking on the cost, it's very, very hard to continue enduring that without seeing any results. So I like to think that one of the things that we do is we... We do 95% of the work for you. And then all you got to do is call the call the ideas, figure out if they're a good fit, call me back and we reflect on it. And one of the other things I think that is unique about what we do is that some other referral entities, it's kind of like, you tell me what's going on, I give you a referral and like, I hope it goes well, good luck. And me, I try and circle back to people about a month later, check in, see how it's going. If it's not going well, I'll give some more recommendations. Sometimes they're like, yeah, but my therapist doesn't understand where I'm coming from. So I'll facilitate that communication and fill in some of the gaps. And I'll do kind of follow-up calls with the other players involved. Like I'll call the rabbi or I'll call the neighbor who called originally and kind of like figure out if there's other needs. And as weird as this sounds, it's extremely common. Probably one out of every five or 10 calls I make to follow up, they're like, wow, I'm so glad that you called because now that I'm succeeding in this area, this other area of my life has obviously kind of become more apparent that I'm struggling in this area. Or, oh, now that I'm doing better, I'm realizing that my kid's kind of struggling or that I need to work on my marriage in a different way. So sometimes those follow-up calls also lend itself to further growth for the families and for the individuals. Wow. That's really nice. So in the process of building up this like kind of unique mental health um, facility, I guess you could call it, 
Did you face anything like unexpected challenges that you either faced and have figured out or still face to this day? Like, I'm always curious to hear the things that pop up that you didn't expect. So, yeah, and there's, well, like, I'll give you a very simple example. A lot of people who go into the private practice world, they get given private money, they give counseling, and that's the end of the story. But once you become a community mental health center like we are, there's more red tape and expectations about how you document and when you document and the kind of assessments you use and the way you diagnose and the justification of treatment. I mean, one of the struggles that you have when you're taking insurance is making sure that you can provide what we call documentation of medical necessity. And when you're a private practice and you're just taking private pay, like you don't really have to, to demonstrate medical necessity. So while we're also trying very hard to cater to the community, we also realize that this comes at a cost to the clinicians of having to do additional um, documentation. And one of the ways that we try to offset that burden is by providing lots of trainings, covering the cost of CEUs because every therapist needs CEUs, having a lot of case consultation. Because one of the great things about being in a private practice by yourself is you're independent. But one of the really hard things about being in private practice by yourself is that you're so independent. And there's something about being part of a group and being able to consult with your colleagues about cases and have multiple um, supervisors who are experienced that are um, accessible and also have the ability to coordinate care with the other professionals involved. That can be very, very helpful. But one of the many um, struggles is the documentation and standards. Um, and we're always fighting against the 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 potential of just a more lucrative position coming up uh, around for a clinician because I, I never want to stand in the way of any person in a mental health field or any other position of maximizing their own ability to to earn a parnasa to provide for their own family. But then we have to kind of weigh that against. But like our whole mission is to provide care for the community. So I think that we're balancing that well, but it, it is a struggle that continuously comes up. And I think we're doing okay with it so far. So how do you measure success? Like, it, especially, I'm assuming that if you're getting private funding, you have to kind of quantify results. It's a great question. And for a long time, we were trying to figure out exactly how we were going to quantify that. So number one, what we do is we ask all of our clinicians to do treatment plan reviews every 90 days. Okay, here's where we were 90 days ago. Here were our goals. Here's how we were working on that. How are we doing now? And based on the adjustment of goals, you can kind of track like, oh, well, you know, first you were working on X and now we're working on Y and now we're working on Z. And like, look at this part. Isn't this great? And then we also, whenever a client is discharged, we have people write what we call a discharge summary. And the discharge summary essentially details what was their diagnosis? What were their goals? And what was the reason for the discharge? And a lot of the time it's like, well, they decreased their symptoms to the point where I no longer had a medical necessity. Um, so there's that. And then I do follow-up calls randomly with our in-house clinicians' clients. I just call clients randomly. Hey, how's it going? And because something like 60 or 70% of our clients are kids and the parents have zero reason to be deceptive of me, I'm I'm the guy who got them therapy in the beginning. So a lot of times I'll call them and say, like, I'll, very big, how's everything going? And Frequently, they'll say things like, 
oh, my, my child had anxiety this many days per week and it was impairing them in this way. And now here are the areas that we succeeded in. And now this is what we're working on. And I track all that and I keep documentation of it that no one has asked to book me, obviously. And then for our external referrals that we send to other places, I do just what I like to call follow-up calls. Hey, how's it going? And we track more or less, here's the big question that I ask people. Are you satisfied with the referral? And if not, what, what can we do moving forward? And something like 7 to 10% of the time, people were not satisfied. And it's frequently the case that the reason we weren't satisfied is because the referrals I gave them were full. And then they didn't call back because it was just annoying and stressful. And I'm not exactly sure still to this day how I categorize that. Like, does that mean that the referral was not a good referral? Or does that mean that, unfortunately, like, sometimes life just doesn't work out like we want? And some of the time it doesn't work out. I mean, you know, we're not perfect. But I, I think we have a pretty good way of checks and balancing, making sure that we're doing good referrals. And I can only speak for myself, but when someone does say something specific about not having been satisfied with a referral or it having not gone well, I almost always follow with the clinician to figure out what happened and provide any kind of cultural competency that might be relevant that could have prevented the unhappy referral. Um, and sometimes I just don't refer to that clinician anymore because maybe Maybe there's a reason why that didn't work out, but usually we try and try and um, work through that topic. And um, those are those are the ways that I try and make sure that we have high quality services. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, do you, as you're talking, I just thought of this question: Do you find the, I guess, what I would call the obsession with privacy in the firm community? to be hindering in any way, like you're not going to get testimonials and most people are not going to be like, wow, I just found this amazing organization and we to spread the word for you. So I would say that almost in a pretty consistent way, like almost like the ball is rolling, that's happening less and less. Um, the amount of anonymous calls I used to get is, was staggering by comparison to now. People were People have made fake email accounts, you know, plony one, two, three, four, five, six, seven kind of emails where they are reaching out to me because they're, and sometimes the topic isn't even so stigmatizing. It's just like, they just don't know who's going to hear what they don't know who's going to see what. And I don't blame them. I mean, who wants to have their personal business aired in some way? And as we've gathered the trust of the community, that's happening less and less, but we also internally try and work very hard to create um, opportunities to keep things as private as possible. Like, I'll give you an example. At our internal office, we have one ring with one entrance for adults and we have one ring with another entrance for kids. And the way that we do that is the waiting room is in the kids' area. So if a parent is waiting for their kid who's in therapy, they're in the waiting room for the kids' area. And if a person is going to see a therapist and they're an adult, they have a completely separate entrance so that they don't have to run into their neighbor who is here for their kids' ADHD struggles. Rather, they're here to work on something that might be more stigmatizing or something that might um, be, be more intimate in nature. So, and a lot of our therapists also, they don't have clients waiting. We, um, we a lot of people will text like, hey, let me know when you're here so I can come meet you in the hallway and walk you in so you don't have this kind of like extended period of time where you're waiting in the lobby and you have to have some kind of complicated interaction that makes you feel self-conscious. Um, and we also have a, this was also, I think it wasn't my idea, but it was genius. We, in our waiting room, we have a iPad 
that you check in, it sends a text message directly to your therapist. And then you could go back and sit in your car and wait. And now they just know that you're checked in and here. Because if not, what do you do? You ring a doorbell and then a bunch of therapists come and see who's there and check and see. And it's like you're like, you know, an exhibit and people have to come and check and see who's who's waiting for who, which I think, you know, heightens the risk of someone feeling self-conscious about this endeavor. So we try very hard to to do that. Um, and we also kind of stretched what we do. And one of the reasons we became a community at the health center is so that we could provide community-based services. So a couple of people, like, we've got some clients that are in a yeshiva, and they don't want to leave yeshiva to come to an appointment at the same time every week because all of their peers will know what's going on or their rabbi will know what's going on. So we've had therapists actually go to the yeshivas and actually see clients, like, in, in an area, and people don't know if it's a tutor or what it is. So we, we try to be mindful of that, but... I mean, one thing is for sure, if you're if you're going to a therapist, it, you know, the benefit might be way up here and the cost might be way down here, but there might be some kind of cost. I mean, there might be a time where you run into your therapist at a at a sim club and it makes you feel self-conscious. Or, you know, there might be a time where you're coming into the office and you run into your friend who's also seeing a therapist and, you know, we we can't we can't control for all things and we, we do the best we can. I think obviously it is really, really important to maintain that level of privacy in, you know, within the mental health space. But I think what is super cool as an opportunity of being a community organization is that at the same time that you do that and you can stress it and you can um, make people feel really safe and comfortable, you could also work to, and it sounds like you are, to kind of just reduce the stigma overall and well, with, feel embarrassed to fool. I, I, I don't even know how I didn't mention this, but it might be the most important thing. Before I even started the practice, one of the things that was noticed before I even got here was that some people just wouldn't call. So we took on this massive initiative. I think part of our actual mission statement is reducing the stigma in the mental health of mental health services in the Jewish community. And we've had um, we've had like panel discussions and question answer panels, and we've had speaking engagements at a whole bunch of shuls at a whole bunch of different times and on different topics at one shul in town we have i think almost annually a lecture that i've been part of on shuburos where we just choose a topic in the mental health world and it's just free and people just come and hear whatever they want and i think the more that we talk about this and the more people like raise their hands and ask questions and they see like oh well i thought that guy had everything together he's asking this question he must also have something going on and i think that those kinds of natural organic discussions the more regularly they happen the more likely you are to to feel less self-conscious about them because you don't feel alone i mean uh let me put it this way we opened a kind of a branch of nala in cincinnati which is a much smaller community and the smaller community you get maybe even sometimes the more stigma there is and we held an event where i spoke about mental health service in the jewish community and from what I'm told, like half the community showed up. I mean, there was a lot of people there. There was 150, 200 people there or whatever the number was. I didn't count. But um, people were like, that kind of thing speaks for itself because when you look around the room, you're like, oh, wow, half the people I know are here. They also have questions about mental health. And you can also just say like, oh, I just wanted to hear it. And there's not a lot of stigmatization of being at those events, but you're able to know that like other people have these questions and concerns and ideas too. And, you know, once you're on an email list of thousands of people that are getting all these emails or 
you're on the, the Facebook group or you're following our Instagram or whatever social media you're using to see what we're posting, you see that other people are posting on it too. They're making comments. And I think that a lot of that was pivotal in decreasing the way that people feel about seeking their own services because unfortunately, I think that some tragedies probably could have been avoided had people got the right kinds of services and found um, professionals that understood the community and understood their needs. And I think that there were times where terrible things happened because people were just trying to figure it out themselves because they didn't want people to know or they didn't know how it would affect their kids. And then when you would be shocked at how frequently I hear things like, well, I don't know if I want to get my kid therapy because I don't want it to affect their shidduchim. And I'm like, your kid's nine. But like, I don't, I, I get it because like, we don't know. We don't know who will know what or who will judge what. And I think as a community, we've really, really taken massive leaps forward and destigmatizing this to the point where some people who were openly against therapy 15 years ago are now the very people who, who talk about us the most. So, yeah, I mean, I'm on the marketing side of things and I've definitely noticed a shift, whereas like marketing in the nonprofit space 10 years ago was all about the silhouettes. Like, oh, interesting. You know, like a face in the dark thing, something with a, with a distorted voice so no one would recognize them. And the nonprofit founders were proud of that. Like they were proud of the fact that they maintain privacy overall. But for me, that was so counterproductive because at the same time, you're giving over the message that somebody who calls you for help should be ashamed. And I think that that is always the wrong approach. So yeah, now nonprofit marketing has changed and we have people willing to go on video and to give testimonials. And I, I think it's, it's just really, um, it's been tremendous improvement overall and the organizations that ride the wave and promote that are really doing a service not only to their clients but the whole community oh absolutely well one of the many metaphors i give to people that call is in my opinion mental health services should be very similar to nutrition-based services if a person wants to become healthier or doesn't know how to change their diet or doesn't know how to exercise they get a personal trainer they get a dietitian they get a nutritionist and they learn a lot and they learn the skills so that they can empower themselves moving forward. And over the course of that six months or a year, year and a half or two years, or however long they feel the need to engage in that endeavor, they, they, they reap the benefits. And, and, and it's hard to imagine a person saying like, you know, I was really struggling with my weight. And then I went to a nutritionist and a personal trainer and now my life is better. And having that be something that they're ashamed of, like, that's an amazing thing. Like, good for you. You took on this courageous endeavor, took on a personal cost to yourself, invested the time. And now your life is better. And to me, I'm like, I don't see how that's any different than therapy or psychiatry or or any of the other services that we're involved with. Because in reality, you're seeking out a professional service so that you can empower yourself to be the most courageous and most successful version of yourself you can be. And in every other area of our life, we're totally comfortable with that. And for whatever reason, this is the one area that sounds like completely off limits. But I think more and more people are realizing now, this is actually a lot more like physical therapy than it is something that's worthy of shame. Yeah. And more and more you can see people being open to it. And now the Jewish magazines will talk about it openly when that did not used to happen and podcasts and lots of conversations that I think are, are very positive trends. Do you have any particular favorite memorable stories of a client or something that I would love to hear, like something that really sticks out in your mind? Um, Sure. I could probably come up with a couple. I don't know how, I don't know how tame I need to keep my stories. 
Well, my favorite types of stories are things like, um, I mean, well, here's an example that literally happened like within the last couple of weeks. Family calls me because their kid has anxiety. And I'm like, that's reasonable. We can, we can work through that. So I got the kid a therapist. We discussed the idea of psychiatry, went back and forth. We're not doing psychiatry for now. The kids are going to therapy. The kid's benefiting. But then what actually ended up coming out was maybe this kid's anxiety is actually being provoked because his parents have a really complicated relationship and they have a lot of dysfunction in between their communication and the kids never know kind of what the tone of this home is going to be. And then the parents are now going to therapy together and working through their communication struggles. And this one little pinprick in the in this very large tapestry of life of this kid has anxiety has really opened up the entire family to to the opportunity for growth, which really might be the root cause. And these are the kind of calls I get all the time of there's this one issue, but then as that issue gets developed, they call me back about their other issues. And the other thing I think I also pride ourselves on that's also one of my favorite stories to get is I'll give you an example. I spoke to this man who I've been more or less involved with for the last couple of years. And without giving any kind of information that might disclose his his struggles, he had some struggles. It was affecting his marriage. It was affecting his kids. He needed to pull his life together. He didn't know where to go or what to do. And he was in a really, really desperate situation to the point where I was worried about his well-being. And we really worked outside the box. We worked with his wife. We worked with the kids. We worked with him. We ended up getting him to a facility out of the state where he was for extended period of time. And then we got him to a therapist and we got him to a psychiatrist and we got him to support groups, if you will. And I spoke to him within the last couple of days and he was like, I've never been in a better place. Not just I'm doing really well. I've never been in a better place. And now he's kind of like this, like, um, he's almost like outspoken about how like this stuff has made his life better. And he's like kind of out there kind of telling other people to make your life better. And that's kind of what I love to see. I want to see someone not just make their own life better, but kind of embrace the idea that it's okay to pursue making your life better and then talk about it because none of us are perfect. And one thing I've learned in this role is when you look around the community and some people look like their lives are put together and they've got all their ducks in a row, we all have stuff that we're struggling with. We all have stress in our lives. We all have stuff going on in our marriage or at work or with our kids or with neighbors and friends. I mean, we all have struggles and the more that kind of thing gets kind of brought to light, the more that we can work through it and, and, and work together. So, um, yeah. And another thing that I think is one of my favorite things is that it allows opportunities to cross the hushkafic lines. We're able to communicate with people from other walks of life and, and really work through issues. And I think that that brings a sense of healing to our community as a whole. And I see that all the time, like, oh, well, I never would have thought of that therapist because they, 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 they look a little bit differently than I look, or they, they don't believe the same things that I believe. And the more people can kind of overcome their own personal biases to, to grow, I think it helps them in a lot of the areas of their life. Wow. I love that. I didn't even think of that aspect. That's incredible. So I just want to generalize this for a second um, in terms of like going back to the organizations that are looking at all their, I guess, services as nails because all they have is a hammer. Is there any advice that you would give them, like, you know, if they're at the cusp of saying, like, you know what, this is either not working or not working fast enough or not working well enough, and we want to try to take another approach, what what would you kind of tell them? How how would they get started? So 
I'll give you a metaphor. I recently heard a story about a guy who didn't really know what he wanted to do for a living, and he ended up needing a plumber because his basement got flooded. And he talked to this plumber, and the plumber was like, look, I can fix your leak, but I can't fix the water damage. And he was like, well, who fixes water damage? The plumber was like, I have no idea. So we started a water damage repair company, and for the first year of his business, he didn't repair any water damage. He just talked to plumbers about what their needs are. What are they seeing? Who do they refer to? Who do they call? Long story short, the plumbers started calling him, and he learned a ton about what the needs are because he was talking to the people who actually understood the needs. So if you have a nonprofit and you want to grow it and be successful, call the professionals who are already catering to the community. Call the members of the community. Call the rabbis. Literally pick up the phone, call the rabbis and say, like, what are you seeing in your community? Where are the needs? Where are the gaps? How can we do this? And, I mean, you can always call me. I, I, I'd be happy to, to talk with you. I mean, now that I've been doing this for the last couple of years here and been doing it in nonprofits in general for the last... I don't know, approaching 20 years, which sounds crazy, but it's true. Um, uh, I'd be happy to give give guidance, but I, I think that people tend to find success when they figure out the need and then meet the need versus create a an endeavor and then hope that the need is there to fulfill it. So um, yeah, that's that's probably the thing that I think is the most unique about what we've done. And also the thing that I have found to be the most valuable is like, once you find out what the need is, and then you are willing to coordinate care with the people that actually have the influence, whatever it is, the, the, the people at the schools or the people at the shuls or, or wherever else. And pediatricians, that's another classic one. I have relationships with a lot of the pediatricians in our community because they see it first. My kid's struggling. We don't know what to do. And the pediatrician's like, oh, well, let's look into resources. But they're not necessarily an expert in whatever your field is. And once you have a relationship with them, then they'll call you and you can coordinate things together. And you also have to be willing to put your own ego aside. Like, if you want to call me Nazi, I'm fine with that. If you'll call me third person, I'm fine with that. If you want to see someone who's not from in some other community, I, I have no skin in the game other than helping the people in our community get the best quality care that they can get and help them in whatever way they can. And once that's your motivation, then you can really find out what the needs are and really meet those needs. That's great advice. I really appreciate that. So if somebody did hear that and say, wow, I'd really like to hear more, um, can they contact you? How can they contact you? Absolutely. Um, my name is Daniel Solganic and www.nalacleveland.org. Um, Nala is N-A-A-L-E-H, um, two A's. Um, you can call me. My phone number is 216-591-6191, extension 103, or you just press one and then one again, it rings straight to my line. You can also text that number, which is funny, it, you text it at the landline, but it shows up as an email that comes to me. No one else sees it but me. And you can email me. My, my email is daniel at nalacleveland.org. And everything is confidential. Everything is HIPAA compliant. You can always tell me as much or as little information as you like. My calls range from three minutes to sometimes an hour. And um, there, is no, there is no hard limit to how often you can call me or what you can call me about. And um, I'm here for whoever needs the, the guidance that I can give. And if you're calling me from outside of Cleveland, you know, my, my reach is, is more limited, but I, I can be resourceful and I can help people find some guidance too. So I'm open to taking calls and feel free to reach out whenever you'd like. Thank you. That's really special. Before we sign off, I think this was really, really great. But if you can sum up in one or two sentences, the main takeaway that you would want people to hear from this episode, what would that be? 
everyone has something going on. And the number one reason people call is anxiety by far. And I think that there are pressures in our lives and in our communities, especially as from Jews, that makes it very, very easy for what I would consider natural and healthy levels of anxiety anxiety to spiral. And whether that's your issue or you have another issue, um, calling a place and just finding out what resources are available to you um, is always an endeavor worth taking because you either take the advice or you don't, but you'll definitely never be worse for the wear. And you might be surprised at how helpful some services can be to you. And also talk to your friends, your neighbors, your community, your family, because we, we're all in this uh, adventure of life together. And no matter how you feel about your own situation, other people can relate better than you think. We all have things that we're struggling with and we should be there for each other. And if you don't know where to turn, you can always give me a call. Thank you so much. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Change the World podcast. If you have any feedback or an idea for my next episode, or if you're a nonprofit leader interested in learning more about how 14 Minds can help your nonprofit, I'd love to hear from you. Just send an email to tsevia at 14minds.com. For more nonprofit content, follow me on LinkedIn or visit 14minds.com. 